Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. All right, you guys ready? Genesis? Genesis chapter 10, we're going to knock out 10 and 11 here tonight. Uh, A good chunk of both of these has genealogy in it. And so in those genealogies, there's some important stuff for us to consider. But we'll be able to move through these hopefully fairly quickly. As we come to chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis, we arrive at the post-flood world that is beginning to be repopulated. If you recall from last week, we kind of picked up there where the ark came to rest and the commandment, the commissioning almost of of God to Noah and his family to go out and begin. And and we see sort of that divine command again come to repopulate uh, the earth. And then, of course, we have the account as uh, Noah's family begins to grow. We considered last week the account of uh, uh, Ham and, and, and Shem and Japheth, and, and in particular the, the incident in the tent with Noah and the curse that comes upon Canaan. And, and so now, though, I mean, they're beginning to really just kind of live out uh, the commandments of God here as they begin to repopulate the world. And as we come here to chapter 10, this is referred to as the table of nations, okay? This has often been referred to as the table of nations, as in this chapter, we really have a remarkable genealogy and a history of the, the beginning point of, of world history, okay? This is called the table of nations because in chapter 10, we have this incredible genealogy. It's so old, yet so accurate, and helps us to see much of the beginning of, of the history of the world after the time of the flood. And to see also that we are very much as a people, we are connected today. In chapter 10, we have the beginnings of, of civilization, the civilization that extends through today. And it's interesting to me, you know, all this, all this interest in things like uh, Ancestry.com and all the other sites that do something similar to that, and learning where we're from. And it's fascinating, right? You, you learn all these things about your family as you start to put in this information and you can track people and, and all this stuff. But the, the fact is, Genesis chapter 10 is like the original Ancestry.com. Okay, it, like everybody can go to Genesis 10 and say, hey, that's me. Like my, my, I go back to this point, okay? And then from there, uh, we go into chapter 11 in the account of the Tower of Babel. You're likely familiar with that uh, narrative. And, and with that, the Tower of Babel and the origins of Babylon in Assyria and the rise of paganism and, and then making our way from there to Abram or Abraham, which, which really then the remainder of Genesis from chapter 12 on is really going to focus on Abraham and uh, his descendants. And so this, of course, really becomes the incredible story of how God continues to work to bring His plan of salvation to fruition, despite man's bend towards evil and towards sin, as we'll see through the the genealogies. And so it's fitting here in our last Wednesday midweek of the year that we come to a natural breaking point in the book of Genesis, and then we'll pick up in the new year in chapter 12 and, and following as we consider God and his setting apart of Abram and his, his chosen people and uh, bringing his plan of salvation to bear on a lost and dying world. And so it'll be exciting as we pick this back up uh, in 
the new year. And so we start with, as I mentioned, Genesis 10 and the table of nations. And, and here in chapter 10 and verse 1, we read, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. So we have there the time in which this is occurring. And in the previous chapter, we read there in verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Okay, And, and now we come to more of a, a description as to how through the, the genealogies here that were given. We start to see the, the various people that are uh, a part of these genealogies. And uh, these are not complete, uh, of course, in terms of every individual listed. We don't have within these genealogies every single uh, family member. Uh, but the purpose of these, the purpose of these genealogies really is to bring us from this, this point in the beginning to Abram or Abraham, and then from Abraham to David, and then from David eventually to Jesus. Right? That's what this is all about. I mean, as exciting as it is for us to really consider the beginnings here of civilization, Jesus, He's always the primary purpose. He's always the focus. It's about Jesus. And that's no different here in these genealogies, and we'll see that as we make our way through this, we're going to see that that's what it points us to. Now, here's the thing that we must consider here at the beginning, because it's quite amazing the information that we gain from these genealogies, especially in terms of anthropology, uh, the establishment of various cultures and societies in the early world. We, we've got to look at this here because we can't, we can't consider verses like verse 19 of, of chapter 9 there or here at the beginning of, of, of chapter 10 and not consider its implications for how we view, or how many people, I should say, view the world today. There's a word that has been prevalent uh, throughout much of recent history, um, and it is the term race, right? It's the term race. Now, race... Race is by definition intended to capture really more of visible outward characteristics. Skin color, hair texture, facial features, and oftentimes then of a people group. But sadly, in our culture today, the idea of race as we know has really been used to stereotype in the, in the best case scenario to the worst case scenarios where we see subjugation of race based on primarily outward appearance, but then with that, somehow coming to this conclusion, this false conclusion, that there is with that then some sort of genetic distinction, right? And we know that that has, that has fueled then the issue of race that we've experienced even recently in our country. Now, I bring this up here because as we're considering the origins of man, what we must see is the origin goes back to three men, and not just three men, but what? Three brothers. Three brothers, right? These are three brothers. There's an implication there. If all of humanity goes back to these three related brothers that says something about our genetics, right? The fact of the matter is, race is really not intended to even be a thing. It's more of a modern construct that was used for the purpose of subjugation. It's something we've made up. 
Now that doesn't mean, mind you, that doesn't mean that because of this, we use oftentimes this well-intentioned language that sort of suggests that we need to be colorblind, right? Because that too is insensitive and lacks awareness. And and that's important to have in our culture today is an awareness of of aspects of what make us unique, but also what make us similar. We We can celebrate those things. But what it, what it means, what we see in Genesis here, what it should help us to understand is that we need to be thinking more in terms of ethnicity, not in terms of race. Ethnicity speaks more to background, right? Distinctive culture, language, things that have actually been a part of history to this point. And what we'll even see here in Genesis 10 and in Genesis 11, how those of the same bloodline, began to make their way throughout the world and establish different cultures and different social backgrounds. And this is what we see in Genesis. Because the fact of the matter is, if you wanted to use the term race, we are all of one race. Or should I say again, bloodline. DNA makeup. The idea then of, of, and we often use this term today, racial reconciliation, it's truly better stated ethnic reconciliation because we are a common blood that has over time been set apart through various cultures, through geographic areas, through language, and we see that in Scripture. It's an interesting thing today because we have the blood drives here, and many of you give blood uh, through the American Red Cross or you've given through the, uh, the, the church blood drives. And today, and, you know, now they've got this technology, right? They've got the mobile app, and they've got your text, and they keep you updated on different things, and you get test results from your blood, and they want you to, you know, it's a good way to get you to give because then you can see results in your blood work and all these different things. And I mean, it's not like a full lab work thing, but you get information on it. And then, and then you get other cool information like today. I just get this text, and I, you can tell, you know, when it's a text from like a, an auto text thing. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. And I pull it up, and I look at it, and it says, hey, good news, your blood was just used for someone in a hospital somewhere. And so they try, and of course this is like, uh, this is like trying to create a sense of, of uh, uh, you know, keep doing this because it, it does something, it accomplishes something, and, th- and certainly there is. For a moment there, you're like, well, that's kind of trippy, right? Somebody's got a bag of my blood somewhere, and it's now in somebody else's body. That's incredible, right? I mean, when we think about that, and I don't know who they are, and I don't know their story or anything, but my blood is in them. Right? And, 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 and because of many things in our own family's background, we have family members very close to us who it's that same thing. And here it is. You know, we pray tonight for Patricia Cooper. She has a liver. She has a liver. And it came from somebody else. Right? But yet we live in this world today where we just, man, we demonize people and we, and, we, and, 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 and for years, for decades, and even more than that, for centuries, people have sought to just subjugate another person and, and, and create this, this false idea that somehow we're different and, and, and a person's better. And it's like, man, it all goes back to these, these three brothers. And so when we sit here and we say, oh, our Christian brothers and sisters, to, to a degree, we don't even, I mean, that's, there's a biblical component of that, but we don't even need to say that. We don't even need to specify that. I mean, we can say, hey, you're my, you're my brother, you're my sister. Several generations removed. <laughs> right? And so here's the thing. I mean, it, it, this is so important, especially as we continue to deal with those who want to denigrate and demean based on what they call race, and it's just rooted in ignorance. I mean, that's the plain and simple truth. If somebody out there is still holding to some sort of racist ideal, they're ignorant, they're foolish. And, and I don't just say that from a social perspective because everybody's trying to say, hey, let's just all get along here. I'm saying that the science supports it. 
And so if somehow you think that you're different than somebody else from just a raw genetic perspective, you're dumb. You're just being dumb. And then you can say, oh, that's mean. You can't know that's a, that's a real word that's used to describe somebody who's not thinking right. Right? At least in our vernacular. We, and we've got to be real about that. This is the science that backs it up. The Bible backs it up. I mean, it's there. So yeah, do we have our differences that we need to deal with? Yeah, we sure do. But it should be more about understanding differences and backgrounds and having this, this, this understanding of reality that we are very much the same, far more than we even know, but yet we come from different ethnic backgrounds and experiences and language and education and structure and all these different things that have make us unique. And so let's seek to understand that rather than this unfortunate need to somehow try to be reconciling the, the perceived disparity that exists in the value of life when in fact we have the same origin. A genetic study, I alluded to this last time, a genetic study that was completed in 2014 made a link to what is referred to as the mitochondrial Eve. And it states, and I quote, if you trace back the DNA in the maternally inherited mitochondria within our cells, all humans have a theoretical common ancestor. This woman, known as mitochondrial Eve, and so they've got, I don't know where this, this sample comes from. They say, of course, and so we don't need to go ahead and debate some of these things, but they say she lived between 100,000 and 200,000 years ago in southern Africa. And she was not the first human, they say, and this is a part of this study, but every other female lineage eventually had no female offspring failing to pass on their mitochondrial DNA. And as a result, all humans today can trace their mitochondrial DNA back to her. This is a secular study, a secular scientific study, okay? And of course, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I align personally with more of a young earth uh, as opposed to this 100,000, 200,000 years. But the fact of the matter is you've got a bunch of scientists here that are doing a bunch of DNA, DNA genetic research, and you know what they did? Through the course of this research, they said, this is, this is just mind-boggling. There was one woman that we all just point back to. This can't be possible. How, and, and meanwhile, we're sitting here going, uh, yeah, it's right here, right? <laughs> Her name is Eve. It all goes back to that, right? I'm assuming, so science is supporting this stuff. And this is what's so cool when we see these genealogies is we just have to sit back and go, oh, man. You want to you trace your family tree, it all goes back to this. We're all family. And that can sound like, you know, we're singing Kumbaya around the, the campfire now, right? But I mean, this is the literal stuff here that's like, this is incredible. And so when we then think, too, just about our roles, is not only is the gospel, um, you, you know, because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, we've, we are now ministers of reconciliation, of course, being a part of reconciling people unto God. But, but really, when you just think about how much of a reconciler the gospel is, I mean, its power to reconcile is, is, I think, beyond what we even uh, can imagine. And so, as we get into this here, or again, we're going to go quickly here. This, remember, this is the table of nations. So now, what we have here is this early genealogy that really helps us to begin to see where we came from and then where people started to go in, in the world. Okay, And so in verse 2 it says that the sons of Japheth were Gomer. Now Gomer is believed to, to have made his way and his descendants into present-day Germany, uh, where his descendants eventually settled. Okay, We're going to go through it quick, just like this. And so if you're taking notes, you can go ahead and write it down, or you can go back and listen later. Gomer goes, his family goes to Germany. Okay, Magog. Many believe that Magog is Russia. 
Uh, and that this will, we, we see in Ezekiel that Magog will play a key role in the end times events as Magog makes its way from the north south into Israel. So Magog is the area of Russia. Madai, these are the, the Medes of the, you often hear the, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, we read about this in Esther. Uh, specifically, we see that said a lot, uh, or excuse me, also in, um, in Daniel. These are the Medes of the Medes and Persia. This is modern day uh, Iraq and Iran, okay? Uh, and so Madai was in that particular area. Javan, this is the area around present day Greece, okay? Uh, where Javan and his descendants went to. And then you see Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. These are the areas of Armenia. Uh, perhaps uh, some say that Meshach in particular because uh, Meshach uh, is really the name for Moscow or translated differently, you would get the, the word Moscow there. So again, area of Russia. Tyrus along the Aegean Sea. Okay. The sons of, of Gomer were Ashkenaz. This would be, uh, some believe this is more Eastern Germany and Eastern Europe. Perhaps a little bit because you have uh, amongst uh, the Jewish people today, you really have two different sects of Judaism. You've got uh, uh, the, the, the Shepardite uh, Jews, and then you've got the uh, Ashkenazi Jews. Um, and so uh, tracing back to Ashkenaz, and, and most of the uh, Ashkenazi Jews have uh, uh, kind of settled in that Eastern Germany, Eastern Europe area. Others suggest, however, a much more northern territory, such as Siberia, and then really kind of spanning across uh, the northern part of Asia there. Uh, Rifath and Togerma. Uh, some suggest this is, a modern, this is more of modern-day Turkey, uh, where the descendants have settled uh, from Rifath and Togerma. And then in verse 4, the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim from these and you noticed a word there maybe that stood out to you amongst those? Anybody pick out Tarshish, right? Kind of a hard one to say. Tarshish, to say it. Say it with me. Tarshish. The, the back end does not flow as easy as the front end on that one. And uh, Kittim and Dodanim. So it says here that these are the coastland peoples of the Gentiles that were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And so again, you may recognize Tarshish there. That's from the story of who? Jonah, that's right. Uh, and so these are coastland people. Um, and now we don't know exactly where. Uh, perhaps some say Spain. Uh, some say England or Greece. Uh, some say just a, you know, the coastland throughout Asia Minor, which would, which would be much of this, particularly coming around down towards uh, uh, Turkey. And, uh, and so those are settling, and these families are settling into their nations uh, throughout the land. Okay. Uh, verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush. Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. So here you see maybe uh, some more familiar names than what I've mentioned thus far, uh, specifically Cush, Canaan, right? And these are all settling in the area that is really known as southern Mesopotamia at this particular time, which would in our day be more of the Middle East. But at this, at this time, Mesopotamia, this is the cradle of civilization. This is where, all the, this is where the vast majority of people were there in the area we know as the Middle East. Now Ham, uh, was, his descendants really comprised more of the population that we see in Africa, uh, from Africa there to the Middle East. Cush specifically is Ethiopia. Okay, uh, Egypt, uh, Cush is, is Ethiopia, Egypt, Sudan, that, that kind of general area there, the Horn of Africa. Uh, Mizraim is Egypt, and then Canaan, of course, is modern-day Israel, land of Canaan. Now the sons of Cush 
were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtaka. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. And so the sons of Cush and Rama, they're really, uh, they're, it's southern Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula there, Saudi Arabia, perhaps a little bit uh, into Egypt, uh, aspects there of uh, Libya, Somalia, that uh, particular area. And then we come to verse 8, and it says that Cush begot Nimrod. Now we get a little bit more about this man, Nimrod. He began, it says, to be a mighty one on the earth. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. What we should see here is that Nimrod is credited with a good bit of establishing, of building up, of cities. And so here, this we, we need to pause on this for a moment. Now, Nimrod, thats you know, nobody names their kid Nimrod these days. I haven't met one at least. My apologies to anybody who is. Nimrod's kind of a funny name. It, it means, some say it just it, it explicitly means this, others say the language sort of ties to this, but it gives us the idea of Nimrod means to rebel, rebel or to rebel. And in fact, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's so often the case, uh, at least within uh, Bible narrative, where it's like, man, a, a person's name really meant something where you find yourself almost wondering, this person get named after the fact? I mean, it was like, uh, you know, how, how, how did their name, how was their name su- such a description of the person that they were, right? And in, and in some cases, certainly that was. Sometimes people had many names. Uh, Nimrod means rebel. And so scripture here states that he's a mighty hunter, but this doesn't mean that he's not like the, uh, what, what's the guy's name from Beauty and the Beast? Gaston. You know, he's not like, you know, he sits around in his big uh, cabin with, you know, elk head on the wall and that kind of thing. Now, th- th- what this means is this guy was a hunter of people. He, 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 was, a, he was a warlord. Uh, this is a guy who was a hunter of men. He was a warrior. He was a conqueror. And truly, he rebelled against God. And so his name is very fitting in that regard. He was a powerful leader. As it says, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. Now, when it says that he was a mighty one on the earth, we might look at that and go, okay, so this guy was kind of a cool guy. But no, it was just people had a sense of this guy's got power. This guy has authority. Um, but it doesn't mean that he's using it the right way. He's, he is credited with the establishing of, of Babel or what we know as Babylon. He's credited, as it says there in Scripture, with the establishment and founding of Assyria, which is the capital of Nineveh. Anybody familiar with any aspects of Israel's history? There's really two two nations that cause a lot of trouble for Israel. You have the north, which is conquered by Assyria and led into exile. And you have the south, Judah, which is conquered by Babylon, and led into exile, okay? Assyria and Babylon are both used as a means of God's judgment upon Israel. Nineveh, anybody ever heard of Nineveh before? Right? Go back to Tarshish and Jonah. What did Jonah not want to do? Didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because if he went to Nineveh and did what God was telling him to go do, he was going to go have to preach, you know, to repent. And not only did he hate Nineveh, 
That's a, you say that's a strong word. And he hated them. He wanted them to die. Right? And he did not want them to repent. Because they, the, they were sworn enemies. And Nineveh was a very wicked city. And, and, and so here Nimrod, is, he's the guy. He's the guy behind Babylon. He's the guy behind Assyria. So in his power, in this power, he establishes places that not only serve to be Israel's enemies, but they're wrought with pagan worship. And so it doesn't take that long after the flood here for man to begin pursuing after other gods, namely themselves, once again. Okay? So this guy Nimrod, he's, he's, he's a problem. Okay? And his, his legacy is not a good one, but certainly um, uh, will be consistently found throughout Scripture. Uh, in verse 13, then, we see Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, and Naphtahim, Pathrusim, and Kazluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. Is there a name that stands out there to you? Philistines, right? So Mizraim, as I already mentioned, is Egypt, and through Egypt comes the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were more of a coastland people, but it's said that they made their way sort of south, kind of through Egypt, into their eventual uh, settling. So they came by way of Egypt, not necessarily from Egypt. In verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite. And so these areas here, Canaan, who begot Sidon, Sidon's along the coast. All of these, uh, all of these descendants of Canaan are really along uh, the coast there of, of the Mediterranean and in the area of Lebanon. Okay. In verse 18, uh, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, again there along the uh, the coast of the Mediterranean, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Laisha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. So notice here what they're talking about is there's this distinction amongst people. There's clearly stated that there's relationship amongst them all. So again, common bloodline. However, there's distinction based off of geography and language. Okay? And so this really, uh, f- for these sons of Ham, it's from the coast of the Mediterranean in the north. They're really to the east of the Dead Sea, exactly where we don't know for sure, but it's, it's covering uh, kind of that, that distance. Uh, and children were born also, verse 21, to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber. Does this, is this, does this word sound like anything familiar? It might not. The Hebrews. Eber, or Heber, uh, is the word for Hebrew. And so these are, these are the people. These are the Hebrews. Okay. Um, the brother of Japheth, the elder. 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Our Faxid begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. 
We need to pause here for a moment because this is interesting. We've not heard anything stated like that uh, amongst these other names, that the earth was divided. And so there's some debate over whether the earth being divided here is a reference to what is to come in chapter 11 with the scattering of people from Babel, or whether this speaks more of a geological uh, division in this post-flood world, in sort of an ice age of sorts, where there's a drifting of the land that some propose, which accounts for that strange migration that we see of animals throughout the world. You know, it's been, uh, you, you know, curiosity, of course, as to why we see evidence of like a woolly mammoth um, in strange parts of the world, right? Or how in the world did a, a kangaroo get in Australia, right? Like, how did that thing get there? Um, and so there are some people that, that say that what it says right here of, of Peleg, that in his days the earth was divided. This word earth here is actually speaking more of the, the geographic earth, the soil, if you will, as opposed to like the population of the earth. And so some are suggesting that here this, there's a division happening, that in this post-flood world, and there are some uh, scientists who have come along and said, yeah, based off of what would happen after a catastrophic global flood, as the waters begin to recede, as temperatures now, because of the change in the atmosphere, you would have somewhat of an ice age, and, and the way that ice and water works and the uh, erosion of land, that you would start to see a continental drift begin to happen. We don't know that for sure. Some people believe that, yep, that's absolutely what it's talking about. Um, and others say, no, this is referring to during Peleg's generation, that this is where the dispersion from Babel happens. I'm of the opinion that that probably makes a little more sense based off of context, uh, but that's not something we need to be uh, dogmatic about. And so his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmavith, Jera, Hatterim, Uzel, uh, Dykla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah. Now there's names in here that you're probably thinking, okay, I've, I've heard some of these names a little bit before. Jobab. Uh, what does Jobab sound like? You know it. Trust yourself. Close. Job? Yeah. So some people believe this might be a reference to Job. Is that what you said? Oh, Joab. That sounds similar too. Job. I mean, think about it. If your name's Jobab, somebody gives you a nickname. Job. That's the kind of nickname you get in the north though. Down here, your name's Jobab, and your nickname becomes Sam, or something like that. Right, Jimmy? Still haven't gotten over that. Seven years down here, I'm like, wait, what? What's your name? Well, my name's Adam, but everybody calls me Jimmy. You know, and it's like, I just don't quite understand that. That's culture, right? <laughs> Cultural differences. All of these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha, as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. Again, according to their families, according to their language, their geography. Okay, There was no mention here of race. There was no mention here of a different type of genetic uh, makeup. Uh, far from it, right? They're thinking, oh, we're all connected here but we're going into our various geographic areas. And of course, over time then, um, and especially with what comes in chapter 11, language is going to drive a lot of differences. Okay? Areas all around Israel here um, that are being spoken of, from the Arabian Peninsula north to Turkey, east towards Assyria. Uh, and, and again, this is the cradle of civilization. Um, you know, Interesting here where, where uh, 
was civilization likely before the flood? Probably in this general area, okay? And, uh, and so, of course, there was, as we've considered through the time of the flood, perhaps upwards of 3 billion plus people, um, as well as uh, animals and, and different things like that that were uh, lost in the flood, okay? Where, and, and, and where is the area now where we seem to have the most crude oil in the world? In that same area. Do you know what's necessary for oil to be created? Because, of course, people talk about the fact that like, it's a limited resource, right? We don't, it's, it's not necessarily something we'll have forever because it comes from the earth. How do you get it? Well, it's a fossil fuel, right? You get it through fossil and that fossil comes, and, and, and the material that's along with it has to be decomposed, okay? And, and what needs to happen for it to be decomposed and turn into oil? Well, extreme amounts of pressure, okay? Yeah, I mean, think about it. Think about the population of the world, where they were. Think about a global flood. Think about the pressure that that puts upon decomposing decompo de fossil, I mean, again, you just look at this stuff and it's like, hey, this just makes sense. Okay? And these were the families of, verse 32, of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And so now, though we see here that they will be divided and that the filling of the earth, of course, was God's instruction to them, we understand that they did not do it so much of their own accord, but rather this division comes through God's intervention as we see here in chapter 11. And so in chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So remember, Genesis does not always go in explicit chronological order. What we often see happen in Genesis is that uh, an overview is given, and then in the, in the next section, the author will kind of go back and say, now let me give you a little bit more detail as to what happened during this time. And so in chapter 10, we really get an overview of the nations. We go through the genealogy. And now in chapter 11, we're going in a little bit closer to see what is it that when it says that they were divided on the earth after the flood, how did that division happen? And so here, that's what we find in the first part of chapter 11. Again, one language, one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. So there was this big plain in the land of Shinar, this big open sort of area where it seemed good and, and flat for, for settling in. And it makes sense that they would have had one language at this time, okay? Because, I mean, they're all coming from Noah and his family at this point. Many people believe, and I would agree, that it's likely Hebrew, okay? Uh, why do we think it was Hebrew? Um, because that certainly seems to be a, a good biblical guess. Um, but uh, more evidence of that, really, or evidence to back that up is the names that we see even before this particular time, they're Hebrew names, okay? They're, they're more of a Hebrew name. And so it would suggest to us that, that uh, it's a good chance that that was the, the language that was spoken at the time. And most have settled then here in the area of Shinar, which uh, to us, uh, where is that? Well, it's, it's present-day uh, Iraq. Um, and then they said to one another, verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city 
and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So the people here, they developed this really cool new technology. It's called a brick. Okay, And... Um, as, uh, as funny as that may sound, I mean, truly, these, uh, you know, these early civilizations were, were quite accomplished in the work that they did. But, but apparently this was something new, and the, and the creation of the brick allowed them to build buildings and structures in a much easier fashion um, than what they had done before. So now they're building, uh, they're firing all, these, all this brick, and, uh, and then there comes this, this prevailing sort of mindset, likely spurred on by guys like Nimrod, that says if we all stay right here, if we all uh, we if we all stay right here, we can accomplish a great deal together. Now that may sound all well and good. That may sound wonderful. Yeah, see, these people are just figuring out like, hey, we're stronger together. That sounds like something you put on a poster. And uh, but but here's the thing: what did God say in Genesis nine? Genesis nine verse one. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." And what? Fill the earth. Go. <laughs> he said, go. You're supposed to go out and fill the earth. And so what we need to understand here is, uh, is that they're doing the opposite of what God told them to do when they say, we're just all going to stay right here in this one place. And so more than just, the, just stay there, they're also thinking we can be like God. Right? We'll build it. They start to say, we'll build a tower into the heavens where we can look into the heavens. This is familiar, is it not? Right? Oh, if you eat of that tree, you're not going to die. No, you'll just be like God. You'll know things that He doesn't want you to know. And so here they start, it goes through this same process. We've seen this over and over and over again. Now, it's believed that what, as, they, as they begin to, to build this tower with the, the aspiration, the goal of saying we're going to be able to peek into the, the heavens here, that what they built was less of, you know, in your own mind, you may picture this like just ridiculously huge tower, but it's likely they built what was called a ziggurat, uh, which is kind of a rectangle temple tower of sorts, uh, almost pyramid-like, but maybe not with quite the, the point um, with a stairway that makes it easy to get towards the, the, the top of this. And a ziggurat, uh, throughout history, there's other um, Herodotus uh, chronicled uh, some of this, and, and even still today in this particular area, you can find evidence of, of these types of things. And, and really, as they talk about building it so that they can see into the heavens, it's not so much that it sort of reached the you know, that it was poking through the atmosphere, um, but that it was uh, high to the extent that when you were up there, you could see the stars, that you could really observe uh, the, the heavens, the, the sky. And so they were built for an, an element of observing the stars, and uh, from this begins to develop all sorts of pagan worship. Uh, now remember, God, He set the stars in the heavens. Um, they're there for navigation. They're there for, you know, some people have said, why, why wouldn't the stars be able to, uh, we certainly, when we look at them, can see how they demonstrate the glory of God, um, but that they could even uh, serve a role in, in just declaring the, the gospel, um, declaring to those that, that, uh, that are lost that there is a God, but yet man, when he gets involved, starts to develop things like 
uh, astrology, right? And beginning to try and use the stars to predict things like a person's future and, and, uh, and that sort of thing and the zodiac and all that stuff. And so some people say, hey, maybe, that, maybe those things had their original, uh, their origin in, uh, in um, maybe their origins were biblical, uh, for lack of a better term, yet man has, has taken it and distorted it uh, like we have many things. And then as they're doing this, pride just continues to build. They say, well, let's make a name for ourselves. And we're not going to be spread out. We're going to become awesome. We're going to become powerful. We're going to become great. And so it says in verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now remember, the Lord is omnipresent. He could see already. And so this here is either anthropomorphic language, just sort of speaking of God in, in more of these human terms, or perhaps this is alluding to another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, where in fact Jesus did come uh, among them. And in verse 6, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. There's the us there, God speaking in the plural, the Trinity. Let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So what is happening here, man once again in his desire to be like God and in pride begins to do things his own way. What God has always desired was obedience. That's what God wants. That's what God's love language is. It's obedience. What God wants us to do is to obey. What we're going to see happen as we get to the generation of Abram, and then from there, as God chooses Abraham, and He calls him out, and He he uses him to establish His chosen people, what He's going to expect from His nation Israel is obedience from them. That's what He wants from them. But of course, they're going to be disobedient, and so the pattern goes. That's what he wants is obedience. And some look at this and they think that God seems sort of threatened in this situation. Like, oh no, they're going to figure some things out here, right? Rest assured, God is not threatened. But God does know man's heart. He knows what will happen here as their pride starts to grow. You could say that he's seen it before, right? Here at this particular time, there's a one world system, if you will. A one world government. One language. And what begins to happen? Pride rebelling against God, and what comes from that then is destruction. What about today? We are increasingly on track toward the same. In some regards, we have one language again. You may say, we we have a lot of different languages. Yeah, but guess what? It it is so easy for us to communicate across cultures today, right? I can go and I can send an email, and it it can go to somebody else in another country, and it can just be translated, it can be interpreted, it can be, I mean, our ability to communicate across the world today is incredible. You could absolutely argue that we are sort of experiencing uh, one language again uh, through our ability to communicate. We have fewer and more powerful leaders. Uh, more and more people are just saying, you know, I, John MacArthur the other day said, hey, I, you, can, you can see within the world right now the, uh, I don't know exactly how he quoted it, but, but the, way, the, the way is being paved for the Antichrist and for a one world leader. You know, a lot of people, when we talked about it in the Q&A this past week, a lot of people are saying, oh, this, this, this vaccine is the mark of the beast. I, I do not think the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I don't think that makes sense. I don't think it adds up. That's my personal opinion. But is it conditioning people for the mark of the beast? Sure. As we continue to have more and more things that are just sort of put out there as this is expected of a people to do this or to abide by this or to... Right? All of these things that are happening in the world in many ways are conditioning people for this. And don't worry, if you're a true born-again believer, I don't think you're just going to accidentally 
Take the mark of the beast, okay? God gives us uh, discernment of His Holy Spirit that dwells within us, okay? So if you're worried about something like that, it's okay. Um, and so here we're seeing these things happen, right? And, and, and so what happens here then at this time? At this time, God comes, He intervenes into a one-world system, into a one-world government, with a one-world leader, and He says, no. And you know what? He's going to do it again. Jesus is going to do it again. Because there is going to come a one-world system and a one-world government and a one-world leader and Jesus is going to come and He's going to say, no. And He's going to establish His kingdom once and for all. And so because of their disobedience came judgment. They could have been obedient in in, in dispersing throughout the land. But instead they were disobedient and so they dispersed in judgment. And so the Lord scattered them. And this is really, this is an act of mercy. Okay, God's judgment can be a form of mercy. Because God knows what's going to happen. And so he says, I need to stop this now before it gets too far out of control. So the Lord scatters them, verse 8, from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. And in verse 9, therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And so their confidence gave way to confusion. But this is always the case. Uh, And as is always the case, God is not done. Once again, his judgment, which is an act of mercy, uh, in this he continues to work. And as we will see, he'll work to bring about a people called by his name through whom would come our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so follow along with me here in verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. So now we see a little bit of a repeat again. Shem, but, but then this goes further. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah. After he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarag. After he begot Sarag, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and begot Nahor. Now listen, we're going to come back to some of this stuff when we resume this study uh, in January. This is where it starts to get exciting for us, especially once we dig in and start to understand more about some of these individuals' lives. Verse 23, And after he begot Nahor, Sarah lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. 
for the sake of time this evening, we won't go into all of this. As I mentioned, when we resume in uh, January, we'll consider some of these things because uh, as we start to then consider the life of Abraham, it's important for us first to look at this genealogy, in particular his father, and to see sort of what happens here as they leave Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, but yet they stop. They stop in Haran for a period of time, and I think that's important in our consideration of the story of Abraham. But as I mentioned at the beginning, and and so again, you know, as we look at these uh, two chapters here this evening, I think one we absolutely see here the evidence, the biblical evidence that supports our understanding that we are in fact all of one race, that we are all of one bloodline, one DNA, one genetic makeup, that we experience ethnic differences because of language and geography and and uh, the social implications that come along with that. And so that's the exciting thing, one of the exciting things as we look at these two chapters. But the other piece, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a purpose to all of this. We have to remember as we consider the grand narrative of Scripture, meaning Genesis to Revelation, what's it intended to communicate? What do we see here? Well, we see here not just uh, an author's desire to say, hey, I want you to, to understand some of the narrative of the early parts of, of our beginning, of our origins, but this is all pointing towards something. Listen, as we see God demonstrating His grace and His mercy from the time in the garden, and then with, um, with, with Adam and Eve and their children, and then building up to Noah, and then the flood, and then what we see with, with Noah and the symbolism there and of Noah and his covering, and then as we come into this, this place here where, again, man's disobedient to God, and, and yet God intervenes and, and separates them out, and then as we start to see Him uh, moving His way towards Abram, what we see as you well know, is that it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to salvation. That's what all of this is intended to communicate to us, is that there's this pattern over and over again of of sinful people living in a good world underneath the rule of a sovereign God who intervenes throughout history and deals with us and interacts with us such that he can bring about his plan of salvation in our lives. And as we look at these, you know, it's easy for us to read through this as I just did and for you to kind of listen to that and go, yeah, there's just a lot of begotting going on. And you begot this and you begot that and begot this and begot that. This is incredible, guys. This is evidence here. I mean, you know, even people who don't believe in God, uh, they look to the Bible and are astounded by its accuracy and your ability to use it to understand history. And where I would close for us this evening is in a passage of Scripture that we're very familiar with. And in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, the beginning here speaks of John the Baptist and his preparing of the way that was his ministry. But the latter half of the, the uh, chapter, of chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 23, says this, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Simai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Josi, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, 
the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of, Elia, of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menan, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so again, as we look at these genealogies and we consider all those names and what it's communicating to us and where we, find, and we make our way from Genesis and all the way through, we find this place where they say, the Holy Spirit says, See? See why I inspired them to write this? See why I put these names in there? Because it points us back to Jesus. It always points us to Jesus. And so we come to this place in Genesis in chapter 11, and this is a marker right here. Between 11 and 12, now things begin to change. Because what God has given us in the first 11 chapters is, here's how it all began. Here's how it all began, and here's all the people I used to get us to this point. And when we pick up in chapter 12, then God's going to say, and now... I give you Abraham. And we begin to see how God has said, okay, after I've worked through all of this, and after, I've, and after now the people in their disobedience and because of my judgment, my judgment and mercy, I've now done what they were refusing to do in spreading them out around the world. Now I'm choosing. Now I'm choosing this man. And from this man, I'm going to bring about a nation. And for this nation, I'm going to give my son Jesus. And of those in this nation, they're going to go beyond the borders. They're going to go beyond this nation. And they're going to reach others with the truth of the gospel. And we're going to continue to see his plan of salvation unfold. That's what it's always about. It always points us to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Sometimes, Lord, we come to these passages where, Lord, it can be, uh, it can be a lot for us to take in. It can, it can be a lot even to just, just make our way through it, Lord, and consider all these different names and... Um, much of it, Lord, being what can seem on the outside, Lord, a simple account of history. Yet, Lord, by your Spirit, you help us to see, Lord, that it's pointing us towards something. It's pointing us towards you, Lord Jesus. And what a wonderful place for us to be. That here on this evening, Lord, we'd be looking to you. We'd be looking to you, Jesus. That your word would point us to you. That we'd consider you. And that we would consider a sovereign God who throughout history has continued to unfold his plan of salvation, Lord, that should give us encouragement, that should strengthen our faith here tonight. That for us, living in a time, Lord, where there can be some things that seem rather uncertain, or we can be living in a time where once again it seems as if evil is prevailing and wickedness, Lord, is increasing, that this would not be the first time, Lord, that you've encountered such things. Lord, you know it all, and we trust, Lord, that once again you will intervene to work on behalf of your people, as you are even in this very moment. And so, Father, we love you and we praise you. And, Lord, as we continue in this season of Advent, as we make our way towards a holiday that, Lord, we love so dear, as we celebrate your incarnation, Lord, we look to you. And we're mindful, Lord, of how your word points to the word, the word that was there from the very, before the very beginning. Um, so, Father, we love you and we praise you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. And uh, 
Uh, we just give you praise here this evening. And I pray, Lord, for your blessing upon each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you, Lord. As always, we pray, lead and guide us in all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.